0: Welcome to Ghostwriters Anonymous, an inspirational and interactive podcast where we create worlds through words and writing. I'm Kelsey, and today I'd like to know, if you were a commodity on a merchant ship, what commodity would you be? I would be Eastern Spices. Max had recommended a read which I finished this morning. It's called Juniper and Thorn by Ava Reed. It's fairy tale meets gothic horror. I had to put it down and think about it for a little bit and sleep on it because I really wasn't sure how I felt about the book. I really liked it to start and then there was a turning point and it was hard for me to recover from. And I've read a little bit about the author, and I read some of her interviews about the book, which was insightful. I think what this book has going for it is not only is it expertly written, but the development of gothic horror is so subtle. It starts out hopeful and magical, there's a love interest, and then things go dark and disjointed and broken. And the excerpt that I'm gonna share, I think does a good job of, giving you an idea of how this author writes and the words that she chooses to stick to her theme of gothic horror. For example, if she's describing a sunrise, she doesn't say the beautiful pink petal of an opening flower. She says the sky was as pink as an eyelid flipped inside out. You have these really grotesque descriptions. The bones of the story are from Juniper Tree, which is a Brothers Grimm fairy tale. And I really like what the author says about this. I've always been interested in the juniper tree, partially, of course, because of its macabre quality, but also because it has very little in the way of typical fairy tale tropes. There are no princes and princesses, no witches and wizards, no sprawling quests. It's a very intimate story about domestic abuse. Because of that, it seems more suited to a gothic horror novel than an epic fantasy, a novel with a prevailing atmosphere of claustrophobia and oppression. It's a story about being forced into a narrative against your will, being made to play out the same role over and over again at someone else's behest and orchestration. And there was a point in the book where I felt like I was getting a little bored. But I knew that just as she says here, it's because there's this deep symbolism of a grandfather clock. And as the protagonist, Marlenchen wakes up, she's described as cogs and wheels falling into one another. And she goes about her everyday routine of being the first to wake and going down into the kitchen and preparing breakfast for her father. And then you have this fairy tale allegory throughout. And that's why I was so conflicted on my feelings about this book. Domestic abuse and things like that are hard to digest. But when you juxtapose them with this fairy tale, you're even more jolted because the rose-colored glasses come off and you don't like what you see. The story takes place in Victorian-era Odessa, Ukraine. And Ava Reed says that she has wanted to write a book set in Odessa for a long time, which is where her maternal family originated originates. And frankly, I wasn't familiar with the story Juniper Tree. In one of her interviews, she gives a brief overview of the story. I haven't actually read it in full yet. This was just enough for me to understand where the layers were in the story. And I didn't want to read Juniper Tree in the middle of the book because I was afraid it might give away the ending. But Ava Reed says that even though the bones of the story were made from Juniper Tree, they are in and of themselves completely different monsters. The Juniper Tree is about a boy who lives with his father, stepmother, and stepsister Marlinchen. The stepmother loves Marlinchen but despises the boy who is subjected to daily torments. Eventually the stepmother decapitates him and has Marlinchen aid her in dismembering her stepbrother and cooking him into a stew. Marlinchen buries his bones beneath a juniper tree and the stepmother feeds the boy to his father who is none the wiser. Through ambiguous magical means, the boy is then reincarnated into a bird, which flies out from the branches of the juniper tree. In this bird form, he kills his stepmother and then transforms back into a human boy. The family celebrates the stepmother's death by eating lunch, which is probably my favorite detail of the entire story. Oh, and naturally, they live happily ever after. And so Ava Reed preserves the name Marlinchen, and that's the name of our protagonist in Juniper and Thorn. And in this excerpt, we're going to meet Marlinchin, who has two sisters, Undine and Rosenrot, who goes by Rose. Their mother, who is a mortal woman, and then her father, who is a powerful wizard. And then we'll just dive in from there. Here is what happened to our mother. You should know, of course, that there are only two kinds of mothers in stories. And if you are a mother, you are either wicked or you are dead. I told myself so many times I was lucky to have the dead kind. Further, when your mother is a witch, it is almost impossible for her not to be wicked, so our father married a pretty blushing woman who was not a witch at all. Most of the wizards in Ublia took mortal women as their brides due to the fact that witches have a tendency to become wickeder when they become wives. Some, I had heard, even grew a second set of sharp teeth and ate their husbands. I could hardly imagine having a witch as a mother. It would have been so dangerous. I pictured my sisters and myself cradled above boiling cauldrons or reaching with our fat infant fingers toward capped vials of precious firebird feathers and bottled sirens' screams. But our mother wasn't a witch. Before she was dead, she was pretty and quick to flush, with skin that reminded me of the insides of a conch shell. It was that smooth and pale. She had Undine's golden hair, bright as an egg yolk, and Rose's shining violet eyes. I got nothing from my mother except our identical half-moon nail beds, and maybe the little leap of our brows when we were surprised. I also inherited my mother's love for the fairy tales in Papa's codex, which was why she wed him in the first place. She fell in love with the story more than she fell in love with the man. She told me so when she took me on her knee and used her comb to smooth the knotted coils of my hair, whispering her secrets into my ear. She wed our father in the early days of gridiron Oblia, municipally planned Oblia, right before the Tsar freed the serfs with the slash of his pen. The Tsar's edict hacked up the land of the feudal lords like it was a big dead sow. My father wrapped his land in blood-soaked butcher paper and sold each parcel of it to the highest bidder, mostly Yuli men, but some Ionic merchants as well. Meanwhile, our mother worried in the foyer, her measured footsteps matching the ticks of our grandfather clock. She held me on her hip, Undine and Rose hid in her skirts. The Yulee man in the sitting room had a horned devil's silhouette, Undine said when she peered out. The Ionic man was soaking wet and had silverfish crawling all over his suit, Rose said. They left with Papa's land in their teeth, or so our mother said, and then she blew her nose in a lace doily. There was a water stain on the chase lounge that never came off. Then, Papa had only the house and the garden, and half the number of servants that we used to, because he had to pay them all the Tsar's wages instead of mortgaging their work in exchange for tilling his squares of land. That was the time when our goblin came to us, weeping out of his one big eye, when the marshes were drained and were made into the foundation of a beet refinery. Our mother's tears splattered the mahogany floor. She wiped them onto the cheeks of our marble busts. My mother warned me not to marry a wizard, she sobbed. What will we do now, Zimmy? There is no market for sorcery in Ublia, not any anymore. The poor want to smoke nargiles in Mirzani coffee houses and play dominoes in gambling dens. And the rich want to build dakas along the shore and take mud baths at the sanatorium. No one wants to see their cat turned into a cat face or their carriage turned into a gourd. There is already magic lining every road, electric street lamps, and inside every newspaper print shop, rotary presses. And at every booth on the boardwalk where you can get a daguerreotype of your children for two rubles. They only charge two rubles for a photograph, Zimmy. How much do you charge to turn their parasol into a preening swan? Quiet, woman, Papa said. If you didn't want us to starve, you would have given me a son instead of three useless daughters. He didn't know yet that we were witches. But he went anyway to one of the copy shops and asked them to print up a hundred notices that all said the same thing. Titka Whiskers asks for the gouged eye of a second born son as payment for her work. Titka Whiskers has Yuli blood. Titka Whiskers fornicated with a leshy and gives birth to stick and moss babies. And then they go out and brawl with the day laborers at night. Soon all her clients fled from her doorstep in fear. Soon, the Grand Inspector came and boarded up her shop front and gave it to a Yuli couple who opened a pharmacy. Soon, Titka Whiskers was outside, pale-faced and dressed in dark rags, rattling our gate. I remembered her yellow eyes opening and closing sideways from behind the bars of the fence, her fingers so thin and white they looked already dead. Hear me, Zimy Vashchenko," she called in her warbling crow's voice. Never again will you feel sated after a fat meal. Never again will you wake refreshed after a long sleep. Never again will you look upon a sunset and marvel at its beauty. Never again will you look upon your daughters and feel your heart swell with vast and mighty affection. From now on, your belly will always ache as if empty, and your eyelids will always droop as if you have not slept since your cradle days. And every sunset will look drained of its color, and your daughters will always appear to you like nettlesome strangers." And then she closed her eyes and fell over and died. Her body turned into a mass of writhing black vipers which leached into our garden like dark tree roots. It was another year before we finally trapped and killed the last one. Our maid fried it in a pan and served it to my father with boiled potatoes. He was already whittled as thin as a wishbone by then, and our mother had moved up to the third floor of the house, where she combed her hair for hours in front of the mirror that never lies and drank only sour cherry kvass. I climbed the steps every day to see her so that she could comb my hair, but I was too big to sit in her lap by then, and I was too afraid to look into the mirror that never lies. "'Don't marry a wizard, Marlinchen,' she always said. "'Your father is a dragon of a man.' Even before the curse, he ate up everything his hands could reach. When he was young, he was as handsome as Tsar Koshi, and I was a fool. Wait for your Ivan, dear Marlin He won't care that you are plain of face. Papa guarded his codex on the very top shelf of his study, but by then, both my mother and I knew the story by heart. I swallowed her words and let them harden in my belly like a seed. Indrik came to us soon after, his chest stippled with hack marks from the miners' pickaxes. Eyeless ravens landed on our mulberry branches and sang in dead languages. Undine discovered her magic, and our father dug her a scrying pool. Rose discovered her magic, and our father planted her a garden. I was nine and still chewed on my knuckles at night. All around us, Ublia gasped and panted like a woman in a too-small corset. Artisan schools and almhouses burst from between its ivory boning. An eye clinic and an electric station flowered up in two quick exhales and then, at last, the ballet theater, with a breath that ripped the corset's seams and exposed Ublia's pale, heaving chest. Tourists walked from one of her bared nipples to the other, from the Yuli Temple to the onion dome of the oldest church. They gathered at the ballet theater in the valley of her breasts, right above her beating heart. The tourists were good for our business, too, but it made Papa so angry to listen to them chatter in their foreign tongues. To see the gold-lettered signs that said Welcome thrice over in Ionic and Yuli and Rodinian. Travel brochures called Ublia the city with no infancy. They said it rose up like a mushroom after a rainstorm. I was ten and just starting to shiver when anyone touched me. It happened in the middle of the night. The moon outside my window was slim as a lemon rind. There was a clattering over my head and dirt shook from the ceiling. Voices dripped through the floorboards like water. "'my father's low and rasping and my mother's low and wheedling. "'Something thumped the ground hard, "'and then there was only the sound of distant wings beating. "'The next morning our father sat us down at the long ebony table. "'There has been an accident,' he said. "'An accident?' Undine echoed. "'What kind of an accident?' Rose asked. "'I gnawed on my knuckle. "'Papa took us upstairs to the third floor. "'The mirror that never lies was covered over with pale cloth.' Our mother's comb gleamed like melted moonlight. Her gold charm bracelet had the bleary luminance of sunken treasure. And in the center of her room was a great gilded cage, and inside it a white bird. One of my transformations went wrong, Papa said. This is your mother now. I hate you, Undine shouted, and beat our father's chest with her fists. Rose began to cry quietly, one hand over her mouth. I approached the cage and stared at my mother, her body cut into white planks by the golden bars. Later, I stole Papa's heavy codex from his shelf, but this time I did not read about Ivan and the Tsarevna and the Kingdom of Winter. I read all the stories about women who became birds, thinking there might be a spell to fix what my father had done. There was, of course, in our mother's and my favorite story, the tale of the Tsarevna who became a bird and who was kissed back into her human skin by the handsome Bogatyr who loved her. Mama had told me to wait for my Ivan, but all the bogatiers were gone. And as it turns out, Marlenchen does meet her Ivan, who is a ballet dancer named Sebastian Rezkin. And I really like the version of Sebastian with a b-boy as Sebastian with a v, Victor. I think it's such a cool name when you see it all spelled out. He goes by Savas for short. Titka Whiskers, I forgot to mention, is a witch. Marlin father slanders her name and she comes and casts a curse on him and then dies, which I have to say is a brilliant curse and one that Marlin throughout the book applauds. She says the magic was very strong. It takes the mundane and whittles you away until you're nothing. You're always hungry. You're always exhausted. The joy of fatherhood is dashed away. Your daughters feel like strangers to you and they're in your way or they're nettlesome. And for everyday beauty to be muted entirely, that's the recipe for creating a monster. But when she first lays eyes on Sebastian, we see this thread of the fairy tale. So what happens is her and her sisters sneak out at night and they go to the ballet because Undine was gifted tickets to the ballet by one of her clients. Her and her sisters all have a special gift. Undine can tell fortunes with her scrying pool. Rose is an herbalist. So she can give tinctures and teas to her clients. And Marlinchen's gift is when she touches somebody, she can feel their memories or their thoughts or their secrets. And so that's how these girls make their money for the household. They have clients come in, mostly for the novelty of seeing a witch at work and being in the house of a wizard. And then they give their money to their father. So anyway, these girls sneak out, which Rosenrot and Undine have been doing for a while now, but this is the first time that they take Marlingchin. By now, the theater was packed elbow to elbow to see one Rodinian incomer grace the stage. I peered over Rose's shoulder at the pamphlet, searching for his name like I might glean something important from the particular arrangement of the letters. Her finger went up and down the page, skimming his biography. They say he's the youngest principal dancer in any Rodinian ballet company ever, she said. Only 21. That's so sad, isn't it? Why is it sad? Because, she said, what do you do when you're 21 and you've already achieved everything that most people can only dream of? You have the rest of your life in front of you, but nowhere else to go. I felt sorry somehow that I had asked. Before I could say another word, the orchestra warbled out its opening notes, and the velvet curtains parted and the whispers around me went silent, all eyes drawn toward the single light on stage, round like a rhyme of ice. Cellos sang languidly under the trilling of flutes and oboes. I had never seen Bogatier Ivan with my sisters before, so I could not anticipate the crescendos and decrescendos and when the snare drum would kick in or when the harp would add its sultry voice. With every unfamiliar beat, I felt something plucking at me like a string, my bones rattling, my blood singing. I knew the vague shape of the story, but the music added something new to it, something that made it almost too big for my eyes to hold. The first ballerinas flurried across the stage like snowdrifts in their white tulle. Male dancers in red bounded after them. They were the Dragon Czar's animate flames. The ballerinas swooned dramatically. I knew from the story in Papa's codex that they were the spirits of ice, of pure virginal frost, of Ublia's land before the conquerors came to burn and spoil it. Black-clad, the Dragon Czar mimed laughing as the cellos droned gravely. I knew, too, that eventually Ivan would enter, clumsy and swordless, just a farmer's son and a peasant until he became a warrior, and in this version, as the pamphlet synopsis had told me, a saint. There were no saints in Papa's version of the story, but there was always Ivan. Though I had spent so many years conjuring an image of Ivan in my mind, I was not prepared to see him now, black hair streaming, chest bare with his shabby jacket parted. As soon as he was there under the lights, it was impossible to look anywhere else. It was impossible not to follow his path across the stage. In his presence, the flame men wilted like cut roses. The snow women stirred, silver faces brightening with nascent hope. He stumbled past them to the dragon Tsar. Even his floundering was graceful. The dragon Tsar reared as if to strike him down, and then the pretty Tsarivna danced between them, pleading with her father while Ivan retreated and the snow women simpered. The dragon czar swept off stage with his flame men, leaving Ivan and the czarivna to circle each other like hesitant wolves. Ivan's threadbare shirt tumbled off his shoulders and in that moment I felt as if all the audience was holding the same long breath. Sebastian Rezkin was so lovely under the livid candlelight that I had to force myself to exhale. My eyes traced the delicately corded muscles down his abdomen and along his thighs. He took the czarivna's hand and kissed it. Her movements seemed somehow clumsy next to his, as if she were counting the steps in her head. Sebastian's steps were as fluid as the spill of water, as though he could not imagine moving in any other manner. He lifted the Tsarevna's leg. Her fingers stroked along his face. I felt like a voyeur, like some uncouth intruder witnessing a tender miracle not meant for my eyes. I felt the same way I did when I watched the gulls and the cormorants arc from the pier over our rooftop embarrassed of my own heavy, flightless body. His knee parted the Zarevna's thighs, and I blushed so profusely I knew Undine would mock me for it if she had been looking at all. But every face in the theater was turned toward Sebastian. He was the beacon of a hundred unblinking stares. Whatever my sister's suitor had paid for the tickets, I would have paid double, triple, For the first time, I began to understand Undine's and Rose's reckless desire, the thrill of possibility that drew them out of their beds at night, shucking our father's dire warnings. My fingers curled into a fist in my skirts, and I did not unclench them until the final act, when Ivan emerged as a saint. Sebastian was bare-chested again, wearing only thin nude stockings that he looked like he had been poured into for all the modesty they afforded him. His chest was leafed in gold, whirls of gilded paint that crawled up his throat and spiraled onto his cheeks. Even his lashes were daggered with false pearls. Over his shoulders he wore a winged mantle, white feathers ruffling with his twirls and leaps. I could not fathom how he spread his legs so wide, or how he jumped so high, or how he didn't crumble with the shudder of inertia when he landed again. As the music quavered to its end and Sebastian and the Tsarivna bowed, half the theater lurched to its feet at once, thunderous with applause. Several of the women around me were weeping, cold-tracked down their pink faces. I told you, Undine said as she hauled me out of my seat. Even her voice was breathy, her blinks too quick. But the curtains had closed, erasing Sebastian from view, and I felt as though I had been left unanchored, adrift in the sea of voices. The noise was pressing into me and the heat of all the warm bodies was making my head swim. The air tasted sour with so many tittered words. And once again I could scarcely breathe, like some hot invisible hand was closing around my throat. That was one of my favorite parts in the book when they're at the ballet and she's seen one of her favorite fairy tales that she and her mother love so much unfold before her eyes and come to life in a way that she had never imagined. And then the beacon of it being Sebastian Rezkin, this extremely talented ballet dancer who eventually she meets and she's hoping for this love interest with him. And so you get that flirtatious girlhood giddiness that blooms out into this gothic horror story. And we get that at the very last part when she feels like she's being choked The author's words are always being chased with these hints of violence. And so I think it's interesting because this book sprawls out like tree branches. You have so many tributaries to go off of and you're not sure which way to go. I felt like the entire time I was reading it, I was flitting between, okay, this is what's going to happen. The story's leading here. Or what about this? And I'm slowly seeing every perception just shatter before me. But then you're still buoyed by this love interest that continues throughout the book. But to me, the relationship seemed so toxic and broken. Marlenshin is in this domestic violence household, and Sebastian has his own wounds that he's trying to run from, and being with one another keeps them anchored. Sebastian tells Marlenshin, what would I ever do without you? I would hate to be in a world where you're not here. It's definitely a good discussion-based book. If you've read the book and you want to share some of your thoughts on it, you're welcome to email us at gwritersanon at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you guys next week.